Um, I love to read to my girls. We do that uh, almost every night. Um, it's not a legalistic thing. Sometimes things come up. But what I really love is we're in the middle of a really good book is stopping at, at a really suspenseful part. Um, and it's suspenseful for them and also for me because a lot of the times I'm reading for the first time. I mean, they're hearing it and I'm hearing it for the first time. So Tuesday night, Rebecca and I have been in a series now for uh, four or five months. And we started this book that we're on back in May. It's about 500 pages. And I stopped probably about four paragraphs from the climax of the book. Tuesday night. Close the book. That's a good place to stop. They don't like it when I do that. Knowing that we really weren't going to get a chance to read again until Saturday. There was just, it was a busy week. There was stuff going on every night. And so... Um, four days of not knowing how the author was going to, or if the author was going to kind of tie all the ends together. It was a series. We knew there was another book. He may have left us hanging. Things may have turned out seemingly bad. I really didn't know how he was going to resolve the tension. And I didn't mind just closing the book and stopping because what that does is it, it sort of gives us a, a hunger. I, don't, I want to know. And be honest, I, when they go to bed, I never go back and, and peek ahead. It's the same. So, so last night we, we sat down and we were able to resolve the tension and enjoyed the ending of the book and then realized, oh, we don't have the third one. And we have to get it from the library. And we can't get it on Sunday. So now we're... Still waiting because, you know, there's another book. Um, Sad. But that's my fault, I suppose. But sometimes when you're reading a book, you know what's going to happen. You've already got it figured out. It's not quite as fun. But with this particular book, um, I really didn't know how he was going to wind it up. I mean, I, I sort of figured it would turn out okay. I sort of assumed it would, but I didn't really know. But I didn't mind waiting because for the 500 pages we've been reading in this book and then the other 400 pages in the book before, the author had done a really great job of painting wonderful pictures, of giving us believable characters, of telling a really well-written story. And so his past faithfulness assured me that when we started reading again Saturday night, that he wasn't going to let me down. That, that it really was going to be a satisfying ending. It wasn't going to be cheap. It wasn't going to be this, oh, that would never have happened. It really was a, a nice ending. And it's fun when authors do that, when you can find a good author who will satisfy you, even in the midst of a cliffhanger, even when we've, we've baited the carrot and said, well, you've got to wait till Saturday. Life is not unlike that. We are all in the middle of a cliffhanger, which I read to you a moment ago in Acts. The problem is we've had to wait longer than four days. The problem is that we continue to wait. And we want for someone to open the book back up and turn the page so we can can see how he's really going to wrap it off. Well, we have some ideas. In fact, we can even read about some of the ideas of 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 what it's going to look like, of what the ending's going to be like. But there are still some uncertainties. There are still some things that we're not sure about. We still have some questions. 
But in the same way that that, that author had painted a wonderful picture for us, and, and I trusted him to not let us down, the author of the story that we're in the middle of has been faithful from the beginning. He's been faithful to to right wrongs. He's been faithful to to paint for us a wonderful picture of life. To give us characters that that we can relate to. Fallible, sometimes jerks, and yet people that God used for His glory. And so we have this wonderful author of the wonderful story that we're in. And because of what he's done, he's allowed us to look ahead with great expectations. And this, this meal, this bread and this wine, allows us to do that, allows us to look ahead because it reminds us of God's past faithfulness. We've been looking at those past things over the last several weeks. Uh, about three weeks ago, we looked at the fact that this pictures for us His death, a continual reminder because we need a continual reminder of His death. We need to be reminded on a weekly basis that Christ died for me. It's also a reminder of, uh, and a picture of a new exodus, not fleeing again from slavery in Egypt, but that we have the privilege the joy, the responsibility of, of fleeing from sin. That He's made a way for us to, to actually leave sin behind. It's a picture of the new covenant we talked about a couple weeks ago, that it really does satisfy a spiritual hunger that we all have. And then last week we talked about the fact that it's a picture of our new identity, that this, for Jesus and the disciples, a Passover meal signified to them that we are, that they were, and, and therefore we are family. That it's not just a bunch of people that may get together and, and we're not really important to each other. We need each other. It's necessary for us together in fellowship. I need your gifts and your talents and your abilities. I need your fellowship. I need your encouragement. I need your love. We all need that from each other. And this pictures that as we remember that it was a Passover meal and Passover meals were from the history meant to be celebrated together in family units. From the very beginning, that was the command. And so when Jesus extended that to the disciples, He called them family. And when He extended that to us, He says, you're family. You should act like that. So this morning we're going to take all of those wonderful truths that God has, has gotten for us, that He's made possible for us. And we're going to allow that to help us to look ahead. The problem is I'm going to leave you a little unsatisfied because for the next few minutes I'm going to talk about food. And then I'm going to give you a, a little piece of cracker and hardly a swallow of juice. Hopefully, in that unsatisfaction. It will remind you as we sang that we really are only satisfied in Him. He's the only one that can bring us true satisfaction. So we need to, we need to back up. We're going to back up a long way. We're going to begin in, in Genesis 14 this morning. 4,000 years ago, 
there was a man named Abram. He had a nephew named Lot. And Lot got himself caught up in, in some kind of tribal turf wars between some little kings, kind of some warlords in a sense in that area. And he got himself kidnapped. And Abram, even though he probably didn't have to go after him and, and probably maybe felt like he shouldn't have to because of what had been going on, got some guys together and pursued his captors, defeated them, rescued Abram, brought him back. And, and then a, a bizarre thing happened. This guy who kind of comes out of nowhere, he's called a priest, his name is Melchizedek. We don't even know who he is or where he came from. He shows up and he feeds Abram and his men. And he blesses him. And that has always sort of just intrigued me. How does that really fit into the, to the whole scheme and the story of, of Abram? It's kind of this bizarre picture out of nowhere. This guy shows up in the middle of nowhere, has all this enough food to feed 300 guys. Where do you get that from? And then disappears. We don't hear from him again until the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews says that well, that guy was like Jesus. Shows up, middle of nowhere, feeds a bunch of people, and then moves on. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Then we fast forward 500 years to Exodus chapter 24. The people have, have left Egypt. They have traveled to Mount Sinai. God appeared and He said, don't. Come near the mountain. Don't touch the mountain or you will die. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them lots of other laws as well. And then Moses writes them all down and he reads them to them and the people say, we'll do that. We agree to follow everything God said. We'll do it. And there's a ceremony. There's a a covenant that's established as Moses sprinkles blood on the altar and then sprinkles blood on the people. A covenant with the people that you've agreed to do what God has said. And then this bizarre event happens again that you scratch your head and go, I don't understand. I've read it before and it's kind of like, it sort of seems out of place. God invites 70 elders up on the mountain. Now, how many of you think that at least one of those 70 hasn't already broken one of those laws? Okay, maybe none of them have committed adultery. Maybe none of them have murdered. Maybe none of them have stolen. But do you think anybody in that point in time has told even a little lie? you think any of those 70 have ever coveted something that, that wasn't theirs in the time between getting the law and being invited up on the mountain? Right? And, and they know the rules that God has given. Don't come near the mountain. Don't touch it. And I don't know. I, I wonder. Did any of them start walking up sort of in fear and trembling? What's going to happen? I'm not sure I want to do this. You go first. <laughs> right? There's this, this shuffling of the line. And the text says in verse 10... They saw the God of Israel. And I'm really expecting that the next verse is going to be and something about judgment. 
When they saw the God of Israel under his feet, there appeared as a, a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. And then verse 11, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God. And then there's this fascinating line. And they ate and they drank. In the middle of nowhere, these 70 people and and God serves a meal. Knowing full well that in a little over a month, they would forsake Him. They would fashion a golden calf. They would begin worshiping that. And he invites them up. And and that would have been a great time to say, hey, look at me. See my power? Here's what I can do. Let me convince you of the seriousness of this covenant. And he fed them a meal. You can go through the Old Testament. Forty years later, they show up after wandering in the desert. They show up in the promised land. Coincidentally, it seems, or maybe not, at exactly the right time to celebrate the Passover. They've crossed the Jordan. And in in, in fulfillment of Exodus 12, He has the people before the land is even theirs. They've just crossed the river and have set up camp. And he has them celebrate the Passover. And you know what happens when you have a big feast and you have a meal, right? You get tired and sleepy and wouldn't the enemy be a good time to attack? And at that point in time, the manna stops. It's, it's their first meal in their new home. Before they've even taken the title. He says, this is important. You can keep going. You, you read through the kings and, and there's this series of, of evil kings and good kings and evil kings and good kings. And when the country has gotten really, really far away and God raises up a king and you know there's, there's these two or three paragraphs for each king. So there's a bunch of them, right? And in a couple of those, Hezekiah and Josiah, after things had gotten really, really bad... He spends a great amount of time talking about the fact that they reinstituted the Passover. He could have talked about a lot of other things. And he spends time, the writer, talking about the fact that they reinstituted the Passover and they celebrated the Passover like hadn't been done in years. This idea of a meal, this idea of food as a way to celebrate what God has done, a reminder that God keeps his promises. We get to Isaiah if you want to turn to 25. And and in Isaiah, we begin to get a glimpse in the midst of all these passages about judgment. He he throws out these little glimpses of something to come. Judgment, 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 but one day, but one day. There's these little hints of something that is about to happen. Isaiah 25 is, is no different. He's talking about the judgment that's going to come. And we read in in verse 6 these rather remarkable words. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. 
a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all the peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach from his people, from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This mountain, this place refers to Mount Zion. He's going to serve a meal. What's interesting is, is the way it's described is the same type of food that is meant for the sacrifices. At some point in time, the best, the best of the food which normally would be sacrificed or go to the priest is going to be served to everyone. Why? Why is God going to change the structure where He gets the best? Why is He giving the best. On this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples. Well, what is that? What what is the the covering that's over all the peoples? Even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. Maybe you could translate that even the shroud which is stretched over all the nations. And he tells us in the next verse, he will swallow up death. And notice the imagery. Notice the, the food imagery. He's going to swallow up death. That veil that lays over all of us is death. And, and on this mountain referring to Mount Zion, that's what's going to happen. How did that happen? Well, Jesus did that. This is a reminder, remember, that He has defeated death once and for all. And we look forward to that day when we realize that because you and I both know that we experience death on a daily basis. Oh, maybe not we experience physical death on a daily basis, though probably most of you hear about someone that you know or an acquaintance on a regular basis that has passed away. But you also experience death in numerous other ways. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And, and we know that whenever there's sin, that leads to death of some sort. Death of trust. Death of a relationship. Death of peace. Death of hope. Death of joy. And one day God will swallow all that up. In a sense, it's already happened and we wait. And Isaiah sees a picture it says, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. And we all sit here in this room longing for that salvation. But what does it cost us? Right, if He's going to serve this lavish banquet, surely there's some cost involved, right? Surely there's... What's, what's the entry fee? Well, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? In John 6, the people said, what do I have to do? And he says, believe. 
And then he couches that in, again, food imagery. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to abide in me. That's where eternal life comes from. And if we think Jesus is just making that up, we can flip over to Isaiah 55 and we see the exact same thing. The prophet says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The promise back then and the promise at Jesus' time, the promise today is the same. What He asks for you to do is to come, to believe, put your trust in Him. And we need that reminder because you and I are just like those people way back at Mount Sinai. You know, Jesus in in the upper room, He said, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom. And yet, why did He ask us to do it on a regular basis? He's really waiting. He's not partaking of of something and hasn't for 2,000 years, but He's asked us to do this. Why? Because He knows that we are easily distracted. We're easily deceived. We will, at the drop of a hat, manufacture something else because we really don't like waiting. We'll make our own golden calves. And so He wants us to do this so that we don't get lost, so that we don't get confused, so that we don't forget that He is the faithful author who's writing the story and that He has a plan to come again. And one day, as we read in Revelation 19, the bride, you and I, will be made ready. And we will sit down and partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you thought what they had on Mount Sinai was a feast, or if you thought what Melchizedek serves, or or maybe you're like me, you, you live in a house where we feast every night because my wife loves to cook and does a great job and um, I just kind of feel like we feast on a regular basis. Nothing in comparison to that. The best of the food will be provided for us. And yet we're called to wait. We're called to keep taking these little bites of reminder that God has done something for us. And that's all well and good. And it should be enough. But we take this and we walk out and then are we just supposed to keep our noses pressed to the glass and watching? Right? Remember the the angels talking to the disciples said, "Why are you staring into the sky?" That's not what He's called you to do. He's asked you to go back and wait for the promise of the Spirit. And then He gave them a task to do. To be witnesses. To be examples. To to be many Christs spread throughout the world so that others may see Him. 
Isaiah does the same thing. He, in Isaiah 55, he talks about how everything is free. He talks about what God is going to do over and over again. There's a call to the nations. There's this free gift of, of joy. And then he says in, verse 50, in chapter 56, Thus says the Lord, Because of all that I've just said, because of all that's going to happen, because of what I'm going to do, because it's free, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this. And so I just want to ask you, this week I want you to think about, is there anything in my life that I'm doing that's unjust? Am I seeking to preserve justice or am, am I being unfair in some way to someone? I just want you to think about this that week, this week. And am I, am I seeking after righteousness? This week, just spend some time with God. God, what's one thing, one thing that I do that doesn't please you that you would like to change in me? And would you seek and would you pursue that? Knowing that we have a faithful God who has loved us and cared for us and has promised that He will come again. He's writing the story and the book seems to be closed at times and we're waiting for Him to open up and finish the last chapter. But we can wait knowing that because of what He's written so far, it's going to be really good. The ending is going to be worth waiting for. Let's pray together. Then we're going to sing again and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank You for the gift of Your Son, for the reminders throughout Scripture of what You have done for us, how You long to feed Your people, not just physically, but spiritually. And God, again, we ask, we, we plead, we beg that You would feed us, that You would nourish us as we spend time here in a moment, that you would take these, this little piece of unleavened bread and this small drink of juice and you would use it to nourish us, to comfort us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?